In the 2018 midterm elections, several Democratic senators are struggling to survive in states President Trump swept two years ago. In this edition of CNBC's Speakeasy podcast, we talk to one who isn't, Sherrod Brown of Ohio, who polls show is cruising toward a third term. Like Trump, the populist Democrat commands special appeal among working class voters and opposes recent free trade deals. Over popcorn in a baseball stadium in Columbus, home to a Cleveland Indians farm team, we talked about the nation's political climate, his economic agenda, and his place in the early speculation about potential Democratic candidates for president in 2020. Welcome to Columbus and Clipper Stadium, Huntington Stadium. We're in a baseball locker room. You're a big baseball guy. As you are. Give me your number one moment as a player and your number one moment as a fan. My number one moment as a player was probably, I hate to go back this far, I played in high school, but not outstandingly, but um, pitching two no-hitters in a row in Little League, but it was Little League. That's and, cool. But, but it was a five-inning no-hitter, both five innings, and I don't make too much of it. But you made me think about it, so thank you for that. As a fan, um, it had to be the, except it ended badly, the 2016 World Series with Connie and my children and my daughters. Um, and we had started, they were in their 30s, we had started going to get the games when the Indians really weren't very good. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Rajai Davis hit a two-run homer and Cubs fans sprinkled all over Progressive Field and Cleveland broke down and started sobbing. Um, I wasn't so thrilled they were sobbing. I was thrilled with the home run that Cleveland came mm -hmm. back and tied it. And then that was then the rain delay. The, 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 game, then right? the rain delay came and the world went to hell. The Indians lost in extra innings and um, Hillary lost the election, but the same week. Oh well. Now, one thing that distinguishes you from your Democratic colleagues is that you have affirmatively worked with Trump on a major policy issue. And we're talking about trade. Um, you uh, support his tariffs, you support his renegotiation of trade agreements, his withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I ask you, aside from the issue of working with Trump, who so many people in your party hate, just on the merits of the case, every recent president in both parties and every economist that I talk to uh, have said that, for example, tariff policies make no sense economically, that they cost more jobs um, than they save. Uh, why are you with him on that? Well, issue? respectfully, you need to talk to a wider swath of economists, but I'll, I'll leave that aside. My first job as a senator is to advance the interests of my state and my country. And if I worked against presidents of both parties on trade policies, I, my two days after the election, I called the president's transition leader and told him I wanted to help him on renegotiation of NAFTA, which I have done week after week, month after month with, with Trade Representative Lighthizer. I think you've got to think how we got here. And if you, if you, if you drive through the industrial Midwest and in you know, Central Valley of California too, uh, you will see example after example of how a company shut down production in Mansfield, my hometown, or, or Toledo or Dayton, moved overseas, build a plant there and collected a tax break to do it because our tax and trade policy has played, have played into the policies, have played into that for decades. Um, and no president was willing to address it. Um, tariffs are a temporary enforcement tool. They're not a long-term trade policy. I would have done it differently from the president. I would not have called it a trade war. I would have explained to the American public what, in fact, he was doing for the end outcome to deal with Chinese cheating, basically. I would have aimed our tariffs not at our allies, Canada and, and Western Europe. In fact, I would have aligned with our allies to aim those tariffs at the serial cheaters, 
South Korea, Turkey, and especially China, and would have worked with those allies to figure out how you stop Chinese long-time serial cheating. And that, because China right now, half the world's steel capacity is in China, half the world's smelting capacity of aluminum is in China. They will work their way up the supply chain so they fundamentally undermine American manufacturers. When you're dealing with a country that, we, we can compete with Chinese wages. But isn't the lesson of the modern world that uh, is continuously in one direction, that is toward the freer movement of people and capital, and aren't you, basically trying to make water flow uphill by interfering with the laws of economics on that. Well, I, I, the laws of economics haven't worked for much of this country uh, in terms of, of industrial jobs, in terms of working class people, regardless of race. It's easy for a professor to preach that. It's maybe even a little fun for the media to echo that. But the fact is that but Bill Clinton and Barack Obama share your they values. They were wrong. They were they share my values. I share their values. They were wrong on trade. But the fact is, look what's happened. Look what's happened to you. You think trade has nothing to do with the fact that the one percent are getting richer and richer and richer? In this country, you're seeing you're seeing uh, profits go up. You're seeing executive compensation go up sharply. You're seeing productivity go up, and wages are flat. A big part of the reason wages are flat is because we have not done globalization well. We've we've not taken care of people who have lost their jobs. We have not fought for labor rights and environmental rights. In this country, um, we, I, I wear this pen. It's a depiction of a canary in a birdcage. It was given to me at a Workers' Memorial Day. It symbolizes the mine worker and the canary, but it symbolizes the role of government to help middle class people and to build and, and to create and build a middle class. That means raising wages. You do that by raising environmental and labor standards. We do that in the United States. We used to pretty well. Why should we um, give incentives for our companies to move overseas in low wages, which depress wages in this country. It's clear it does that, but the fact is it's not, it's not working for our country. It's not working for wages. It's not working for working people. We see in cities that have been particularly hurt by globalization, we see higher rates of opioid addiction. We see higher rates of suicide. We see more people abandoned by this country. Maybe the academicians like to talk about it, but workers and union and non-union are getting hurt by it. One uh, quick diversion into drug pricing. Did you see what the administration announced yesterday about Medicare um, uh, changing uh, drug reimbursement rates? Is that a good thing? Will yeah, it make a big step. difference? No, Not a big step. Well, it's a small step. Uh, the president called it revolutionary with his hyperbole, no surprise. Uh, it is not that is a good step. Um, we need to do a lot, lot more. And But fundamentally, the White House looks like a retreat for drug company executives. and. Um, they made this step. Drug companies don't really like it, but if that's all they have to accept, they will be pretty happy. There are things we should do. Uh, drug companies shouldn't be allowed to deduct the cost of advertising. Drug companies, we should negotiate the way we do at the VA. It works for veterans, and uh, we should serve those who serve us better, and we're doing it at least on drug prices. We're not doing it on Agent Orange and some other things. We're doing it on drug prices where the, the VA negotiates directly with the drug companies. Uh, to bring prices down. We should do that with Medicare. We should do that with prescription drugs generally. If you guys win the Senate, you'll be the chairman of the banking committee. Um, and even if you don't win the Senate, Democratic, um, uh, a potential Democratic takeover of the House would give you more leverage uh, as a, uh, the ranking member of the banking committee. You gave a speech earlier this year where you said that you thought there was something fundamentally rotten in American finance. What is it that's rotten? Well, what's rotten in Wall Street is the influence the 
the, uh, the financial services industry continues to exert on Congress. Whenever they want something, they almost always get it. Um, there's this collective amnesia that's set in on Congress, especially on Republicans, but a few Democrats from time to time, um, where they forgot what happened 10 years ago. They forgot that it was Wall Street greed and overreach that cost hundreds of billions of dollars in retirements, uh, for, for in, in retirement savings, cost millions of jobs, cost million, caused millions of foreclosures, and now the, the Wall Street comes knocking again. They want to deregulate this administration's appointees to a number of federal regulatory agencies want to deregulate um, uh, foreign banks in the United States. They want to weaken uh, capital requirements on Wall Street. They want to weaken the Consumer Protection Bureau. So would your objective be to uh, principally to prevent Dodd-Frank from being weakened or are there affirmative steps beyond Dodd-Frank that you think we should take to address what you well, think is rotten? Of course, of course it's both. Uh, you, you don't allow weakening of the rules that has, have made Wall Street behave a little better, but there are always new challenges, mm -hmm. and especially in capital requirements. And I, I would add, especially in the Consumer Protection Agency, the, a Rich Cordray, a close friend of mine who happens to be running for governor of this state to mm -hmm. succeed Governor Kasich, uh, strong, and Rich is a strong supporter of Medicaid expansion, his opponent not so much. Rich, Rich made his name, in, in a sense, I mean, already had, but as the head of the Consumer Bureau, and he stood up to Wall Street. Um, we have a head of the Consumer Bureau now that's been basically a lapdog for right. Wall Street. And that's, that's a big difference with what's happened in Washington, Rich Cordray versus a lapdog. So it sounds like it's more of a, a defensive agenda, that is to pr prevent um, uh, things that have been done from being dismantled as opposed to trying to break up banks or reimposing Glass-Steagall or... That yeah, I, I have little interest in reimposing Glass-Steagall. I don't think that's an answer to, that's an answer to a question that's not being asked. Um, the, and bringing up the banks, the banks are they're, they're too big and too powerful. That's not on my agenda. My agenda is to uh, say play defense, but it's to make sure we have a vibrant consumer protection agency. It's to do oversight. I mean, the, 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 the appointees from the administration to be these regulators are people, some of whom had a lot to do with the housing crisis and a lot to do with the Wall Street greed and overreach. So you're damn right I play defense when they're trying to do things to undermine the economy because Wall, the animal spirits of Wall Street will all, in the economy will always mean bankers want to take more risks. I don't blame them. They're acting in maybe their stockholders' best, not their communities, but their stockholders' best interests. They're going to do that. You need regulators to say no. You, you need regulators to keep um, hundred one. 120 miles from here, Lake Erie. You need regulators to make sure people don't dump stuff in Lake Erie. You need regulators to make sure banks don't take too much risk. I mean, this bank, this is this park is named after a mid-sized bank, Huntington Bank. They are a good bank. They they do things right the great majority of time. They're a great small business lender. Um, they're, I'm way less concerned about their overreach than I am the, the banks that are literally 10 times their size, in some cases, 15 times their size. I ask you about the word socialism in our politics. White House just put out a report the other day attacking uh, socialism and linking Democrats and Democratic proposals to socialism. Some uh, uh, Democratic politicians who've been elected have embraced that title. How should Democrats regard that debate? Is it a dirty word? Is it a, uh, what? It's a political calculation that's poll tested by Karl Rove and whoever is the new Karl Rove in the Republican Party. Um, 
it's pretty meaningless in terms of the way we do our jobs. I mean, I, I want government on the side of the public. I want, I, I, want to res I want government to respect the dignity of work and advocate for workers. I don't really care about labels. I, I never look You're left or right. You're not scared of that word. No, I'm not. I, 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 don't, I don't think voters think about that stuff. I, I mean, you ask at the beginning of the interview, how do I win in a state that Trump won by almost double digits? And I, I haven't won. I mean, I won before this election's in front of us. But uh, you don't do it by saying he's liberal, she's conservative, I'm middle the road you stand for workers you stand it's whose back do you have it's who, whom do you fight for is so, medicare for all socialism no i mean medicare i think the better the better way to do health care is to allow and i've worked on this for years uh, and i actually talked to president clinton about this issue because my first time i introduced a bill on this was he was was he was president and to allow medicare buy-in at 55 that was part of the Affordable Care Act until we lost, we fell short of the mm -hmm. 60 votes on the last week. But to allow people, I mean, look, look, look who's most hurt by, and who, who is most vulnerable in healthcare. It's a 58 or a 61 year old um, man or woman in Dayton who has lost her job because her plant closed. She's 58, she can't find insurance. And it's a point in her life when her health's getting bad, especially if she worked construction or in a factory or worked in a diner or worked in a hair salon and was on her feet all day. And you, um, that's when they need Medicare at Is 58. that still what you're for? Oh, absolutely. Buying at 55? Absolutely. Not Medicare for all? I have not co-sponsored. I, I don't oppose Medicare for all. I, but I, I don't think we get there now. I think what we do is we do Medicare at 55, allow, it's voluntary, it's a buy-in, you can do it fiscally responsibly and give that 58-year-old laid off woman in Zanesville, Ohio a chance to buy into Medicare at a reasonable price at that age. One of the th thing, reason I asked the question about socialism is there does seem to have been a shift in the democratic debate. When Obama was president, one of his aides told me one time, we weren't allowed to use the word redistribution, even though things like Obamacare did redistribute money from people who paid taxes for it to people who got benefits. You, uh, Senator Harris and others, have proposed major redistribution of uh, money to people through the earned income tax credit or other vehicles. Is that something that you see is now politically saleable and why is that? I always have. I, I mean the, the, the real masters at redistribution are, are Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan who um, redistribute income up. That's the, and, and, and that's the what they do. They have, they have taken a tax system Understood, but it's proven easier to do that by cutting someone's taxes than by writing, having government write a check to someone. That's just been their that's, political reality. That's, that's their political reality. I, I'm surprised you buy into it, John. What I'm saying is that has proven politically, more politically achievable. Well, it's politically achievable because the people that, I mean, because Washington is rigged in the sense that Washington can always pass a tax cut for rich people because who, who are most members of Congress? Many, many, many of them are millionaires who are most lobbyists. As you may know, John, there aren't a lot of people walking around the halls of Congress that are advocating for workers um, mm -hmm. at the local diner in Garfield Heights. They're advocating for the big, the big power companies and the big drug companies and in Wall Street. So of course it's easier to give a, a, a Ray Wood, but one of my proudest achievements in Congress is we expanded the earning tax credit mm -hmm. a couple, three years ago and that provided $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 in the pockets of what's called a refundable tax credit, as you know, in the pockets of people making twenty and $30,000 a year. That's always that, harder to do politically exactly. than to give a big tax cut to rich people. But do you but, think the table is set politically for Democrats to embrace in a full-throated way so. that kind of my, redistribution? But uh, no, to me, it's, it's fairness. I mean, 
you know, people, people that work in a diner, people that cut hair, people that work construction, they work every bit as hard as you do and I do. Mm -hmm. And they get so little to show for it and they have a government that's not on their side so often. And I don't call that redistribution, I call it justice, I call it fairness. Um, it's what our government should be. Let me say it this way, I, I spoke to the president, um, I was in the, over, in, the, in the cabinet room with a dozen senators as the tax bill was being written. Mm -hmm. I had two bills I, I mentioned in the group and then I handed the bills specifically individually to the president afterwards. And one was called the Patriot Corporation Act. It simply says if you, pay, if you, if you, um, if you produce in this country and you pay decent wages and provide adequate health care and retirement, you get a lower tax rate. The other was the Working Families Tax Relief Act, which expanded, did some of the things that you said Senator Harris and I are working on. Um, the president said he liked both of them. That was then. Within a week or two, in the majority leader's office, down the hall, behind the chamber of the Senate, uh, the lobbyists went to work, and instead of justice for, the, for, for working families, it was redistribution upward to the richest people in this country. And that's the bias in Washington, and that's what I hope the media talk about more and politicians fight for more. Senator Warren has a proposal to do that more indirectly by uh, requiring as a condition of corporate charter worker representation on corporate boards, which would not require government outlays. What do you think of that idea? Um, that's fine. I, I, I support anything that gets us there. I, I also have a bill that I didn't present to the president called the Freeloader Free Loader Fee Act. And that says when, when a company that's got not a, not a diner with, 50, with 30 or 40 employees, but a, a big company of over X number of, of people have, um, when they pay so little that their workers are eligible for Medicaid, food stamps, housing vouchers, and earned income tax credit, that they should pay a freeloader fee. They should, they should reimburse taxpayers for their low wages. Fundamentally, a company that, that um, is making a lot of money. Their executives are making six, eight, ten million dollars a year. Their workers are paid so little that government subsidizes their workers. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm I'm for housing vouchers for the for working families that aren't making much money. Mm -hmm. I'm for their getting um, help on Medicaid, as Governor Kasich is a Republican in my state. But um, those companies should have to pay a penalty for that. Last uh, 48 hours or so, we've had this spate of now a dozen. Um, potentially explosive devices mailed to people in politics. What do you make of that? Uh, I was with your uh, longtime colleague in Ohio politics, John Kasich, yesterday, and he was putting some of the blame on President Trump for things he said. Do you see it that way, or how do you feel? I don't want to point fingers. I just want to, I just hope, I have a debate tonight mm -hmm. um, with my opponent, the third debate, and I, I will ask him to join me in asking the president to to try to unify the country. I remember when President Bush, with whom I vehemently disagreed on trade policy, on tax cuts for the rich, on the, the Iraq war, I remember uh, President Bush right after September 11th went to a mosque um, because he wanted to unify the country. And I wish this president would, would stop the divisive rhetoric and, and I wish this president would respect your profession and I'm not saying that because I'm sitting with someone from your profession. I never believed that the media were the enemy of the people or that they don't play an important role. In fact, if anything, the media's role in keeping politicians and business honest has, has fallen back because there aren't enough reporters at the State House in Columbus or at the Capitol in Washington. There are not enough investigative reporters nosing around in, in, in one Wall Street or at, at, at capitals, and so it's... Yeah, that, that, that to me is the biggest shortcoming of the media now, not that in any way they're enemies of the people, but they're, they're not enough there. 
enough of them. There is, you know, the big media companies are making money, but they're not hiring reporters. They're not paying them well, and they're not they're not hiring investigators to do what needs to be done to keep our democracy strong and vibrant. You hear a lot of pessimism uh, uh, these days about the state of our democracy and the political uh, debate. Are you pessimistic or or not? Um, I'm really never pessimistic. I. I think this is a troubled times. I think this president has added to the divisions and is, I mean, we were a divided country before Donald Trump, but he's made it much, much worse. Uh, we have, um, you know, we have one network that uh, doesn't really believe in truth telling, frankly, uh, and the narrative that the number of people that still believe Barack Obama wasn't born in this country or the number of people that think John McCain wasn't a hero, as we heard from some voters said, said because he left Vietnam and used his father's connections when it was exactly the opposite. Um, that comes from a, 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 a news organization that, that has put out those, those untruths. So my biggest long-term concern is first climate change and that this, this government now, uh, the leadership in Washington, the Republican leadership has simply failed to acknowledge it. That worries me. I'm worried about the long-term impact on the judiciary of, of young, very far right, very much out of the mainstream judges from district court all the way up to the Supreme Court. And I'm worried about um, the fact that um, it's hard to govern when a, a quarter of the country gets its news from a source that's not really news. And so we, we've got to figure that out as a nation. Several of your colleagues in states that President Trump uh, won comfortably uh, are in trouble this election year. Uh, you're in one of those states, but you're not in trouble. Explain that. Why, no, I, why, I, I why is that? I don't look at voters as Trump voters or Clinton voters. I don't look at workers or white, black, white workers or black workers. I talk about workers. And I think in the end, um, it's whose side are you on? And I, I, I urge my colleagues always, and I hope if there's, there are Democratic majorities, whenever there are next year or beyond, that we really do focus on the dignity of work. And that is, that is making sure that people who work, get up every day, work hard, play by the rules, have a decent standard of living, that their, that their wages go up, that their health care benefits are, are adequate, that they have some retirement, um, and that we have to, at the same time, make sure we keep health care costs down. And uh, we're not, there's, there's no interest in doing that in Washington now. Their interest is more tax cuts for the rich. Uh, more cuts in Medicare. I mean, McConnell's comments in the last couple of weeks where the way we pay for the budget deficit created by tax cuts, where three-quarters of the dollars went to the richest 1%, the way we pay for that is to cut Medicare and Social Security or raise the eligibility age. That's, that's, that's morally reprehensible, and it's bad economics, and they all should be ashamed of themselves for that. Your election's in a little over a week. Um, immediately, there's going to be a lot of talk uh, and action uh, toward the 2020 race. Uh, Senator Warren says she's going to take a hard look at it um, uh, after election. Seems clear she's going to run. What, are, what is your thinking on that issue? I'm thinking that Senator Warren's probably going to run. Uh, Was that you your question? Uh, <laughs> are you thinking that Senator Brown's going to run? I don't really. I don't. I don't like the idea of running for president. I don't. I don't really have any real interest in that. You said to one of your home state newspapers, you think about it from time to time, and you get people talking to you about it. You're going to go through a period of consideration of the process after November, don't you think? Well, no, no news on this story. Sorry, I, um, I, I'm going to. My wife and I are going to, and my kids and grandkids. We spent 
spent the evening with him last night. We're going to spend more time with him after the election. I, I don't I don't aspire to be president of the United States. And I, I know my name's mentioned. It's mentioned because I win in a Trump state. Mm -hmm. And if I win this year and um, this part of the country is how we is where we lose elections. And I, like here, no, here, here's what here's what I hope comes out of this election. First of all, I hope to win. Second, I hope that uh, Rich Cordray, who would be a really good governor, I hope he wins in the, in the Democratic ticket. And third, I hope the message that I win with, um, the dignity of work and, and whose side are you on and, and it's whom you fight for and what you fight against, I'm hopeful that gets into the national debate because I, plenty of my colleagues want to be president a lot more than I do. That's it for this edition of Speakeasy. Thanks for listening. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us your feedback. And one more thing, don't forget to vote in midterm elections. Talk soon.